We'll just get organized here, sorry. Um, it's really nice to be here. It's nice to see some of you. I would love to see more of you, at least while I'm talking. Um, familiar faces and new faces, I see. So we're going to do a little meditation together. I'm going to give some, maybe I'll say a little bit to context of the meditation. We'll take a short break. Then I'm going to share some Dharma reflections on you, with you. Uh, and then uh, probably have some time for uh, discussion. There's a sutta teaching from the Buddha that I really like that uh, comes from a sutta that's called, uh, the translation they usually give is the removal of distracting thoughts. And uh, in the teaching, the Buddha describes a person that's running through the woods. And uh, then they realize, oh, I'm running through the woods and I don't need to be running. I can be walking. And then they realize, well, I don't even need to be walking. I could be standing. And then eventually the person is lying down, very restful. Um, and I and I love this teaching because I see it in myself sometimes when there's like just a little bit more energy in the mind or in the body than is needed for the task at hand. I sometimes feel like, especially when I'm a little bit excited, uh, that like it's like I'm waving my arms around. I mean, I'm not literally waving my arms around, but there's like some extra thing that's operating in me that's just extra energy. One of the ways we can think of uh, meditation, and in particular, to talk about samatha meditation, which we can distinguish from vipassana, uh, is this process of like letting the gears, letting yourself move into a slower gear, letting the creating conditions that allow the energy of the system to settle down. I like the analogy of a snow globe. If you've sat with me ever before, you've heard me use this many times. Uh, but I love that analogy because it's like we could think that like when we're going through life with all the responsibilities and things that we have to do and uh, a world that is fraught and difficult, um, that it's like there's this agitation in the snow globe and we're just in the midst of that agitated field. But actually the thing that settles the snow globe is just to place it on the table. It's not even really a way or a technique that would settle the snow globe because any effort to manipulate it just makes it more agitated. Um, so when we talk about samatha meditation, it's really meditation technique that is designed to calm the body and the mind and the nervous system to create a feeling of ease to take us from uh flight fight freeze to rest and digest uh and then you know we could, I could probably give a whole long talk on this but the essence of the practice is that we you know we practice in a way that's designed to achieve the results we seek so seeing as you practice like you know, are there patterns of the mind that are creating more agitation or are we allowing things to just settle and the other thing that's really helpful in this style of practice is um, 
what I sort of call a loyalty or devotion to the object of meditation. So I'm going to use the breath as the object of meditation. And, and the encouragement will be to like stay close to the breath when you notice that a thought has happened or there's some distraction um, to just come right back to the breath. You know, in a, in a Vipassana style meditation, we might explore, oh, there's thinking happening and what kind of thinking is happening and where's the energy in the body that's feeding that thinking. It's a very useful practice, but it, here the encouragement is just, just coming back, just coming back, kind of developing. A, a, the mind can just be a little bit secluded from even the activity of investigating our experience. It's just simplifying just the breath, returning to the breath again and again. Another thing that uh, I've been working on in my own practice is the idea of preparing for practice. And I usually meditate during the day and quite often midday, quite often I'm going from the busyness of life to sitting down and then course, what's going through my head or the email I just sent or the email I just read or the thing that I have to do, you know, like we, we bring our minds with us. And I think there's something about preparing, preparing the mind, preparing the heart for practice. Um, one way that I like to do that is by invoking a sense of reverence, respect, uh, uh, some sense that what we're doing is important, even sacred, if that word it resonates for you, and um, that it's larger than ourselves in some way. Uh, to the outsider, seems like a selfish endeavor, but my view is that and there's a way in which we're practicing for, for all of us on this planet. Uh, I like ritual. So one of the rituals that I do that gets me into that sort of state of mind of reverence and respect is chanting. Um, so I thought I would start us with a little chant just to kind of invoke that sense of like something is uh, really special and connecting this chant. Some of you will know it. It's a refuge chant that, that just connects us to a lineage of 2,600 years, give or take. Um, this, uh, I feel like that's a really helpful way to kind of prepare. So, Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Buddham Saranam Gachami. Dhamham Saranam Gachami. Sangam saranam gachami, dutiampi buddham saranam gachami, dutiampi sangam stamam saranam sangakachami, dutiampi sangam saranam gachami, tatiampi buddham saranam gachami. 
Tatiampi dhammam saranam gachami Tatiampi sangam saranam gachami So letting all those words settle. And then noticing what it's like to have a body, to be in a body. And what sensations are most prominent. Maybe noticing some sensations pleasant, maybe others unpleasant, maybe some of them neither. It's kind of neutral. And seeing if you can get some sense of the attitude of the mind, the mood of the mind. It's not quite thinking, but like a orientation or a view that's coloring how you're seeing this moment. Mine can be grumpy, mine can be open, can be scattered or focused. However it is, just to connect with the truth of this moment. Don't have to change anything. And then noticing if there's a problem to be solved. Is there not enough of something? Or is there too much of something? Too little energy in the system, too much energy in the system. or some uncertainty, vacillation, some question. In those moments where there's not a problem to be solved, it can be a profound sense of joy and relief and savor that. Those are the conditions of this moment. And if there is a problem in this moment to be solved, what is it to relax, to soften? To give yourself over to this moment just as it is? Just this moment. Now letting the attention rest on the feeling of the breath moving through the body, 
It can be the sense that all other experience fades into the background. And the field of awareness is filled with this flow of changing sensations. Letting it be really simple, breathing in, knowing, feeling, experiencing the in-breath. When breathing out, knowing, experiencing, feeling the out-breath. Just that. And every time you notice that the attention has wandered, just gently coming back to the breath, softening. One thing that aids this process of downshifting is relaxation in the body. We're letting each out-breath be an invitation to relax, to soften, to yield to gravity. Breathing in, knowing that you're breathing in, breathing out, knowing that you're breathing out, letting the practice be restful, but just receiving this experience of breathing.
if there's extra energy in the body or some physical or emotional pain that's present. First thing, if you can let that just be in the background, don't have to push it away, just letting it be there, the background or off to the side. And the attention stays directed on the feeling of the breath moving through the body. Only if some feeling of restlessness or discomfort is having a strong pull on the attention, you can invite it into the practice, a sense of breathing with or breathing through that part of the body. Letting the body be like a kind of salve. And practice with this attitude of nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one you have to become, nothing to be rid of, nothing to get, just this breath. Teacher of mine used to say, just to be alive is enough. Just to be alive enough, and we can connect with the aliveness of the body through the breath that keeps us alive.
Just returning again and again to the simplicity of resting and alert awareness. Connected with the body through the breath. Well, finding that sweet spot of effort, we grip too tightly to the breath, that creates tension. If we're too loose, then the mind just tends to flood around. But the effort should also lead to the sense of being restful. Steadying.
this process of returning again and again. This is really the heart of the mindfulness practice. A commitment to begin again in each moment, which we can aspire to do with freshness.
Now letting go of any sense of practice or technique. Letting go of any sense of doing. And just resting. Of course, the awareness notices experience, but it can be a sense of not picking anything up, not getting involved, just resting. Sure, you could hear that bell, but um, thank you for your practice. So, um, a little nostalgic for the old days where this used to happen in person on the Spirit Rock land. And one of the highlights of the experience, if you were there, um, was the break and the infamous cookies. So uh, I wish I could offer you all cookies. Unfortunately, I have no way of doing that, but I will offer a break. Um, let's just take a eight-minute break. Is that possible, Liana? <laughs> You'll set a timer. We'll come back at uh, eight o'clock Pacific time. Stretch, take a bio break, have a treat. We'll see you in a few minutes.
I wondered if we were going to lose anybody, but it looks like we gained a couple people. So, uh, I wanted to um, share some thoughts tonight. I um, there was a thing that was kind of floating around the internet. Uh, the story of a woman who went to Iceland and uh, she was not part of a tour group and. Um, I guess she she got off the bus and uh, changed her clothes and then she came back and um, heard that someone was missing and uh, kind of a big deal. I guess it was a forested place and potentially dangerous. So a search party was organized and I think the Icelandic equivalent of the National Guard and all the rescue workers came out and they were searching um, way early in the morning, like three or four in the morning. And then the woman realized that um, they were looking for her. Uh, probably some something lost in translation. Uh, she didn't recognize the description of the person they were looking for as being herself. And the the headline of the article I read said, missing woman finds herself in Iceland after joining her own search party. And what I love about this is like, she found herself, but was she missing? (laughs) Did they really find her? Was she really lost? Uh, And this reminds me of what the Buddha talked about when he spoke about samsara, like the this is the nature of samsara that we're searching. I think literally that translates to something like wandering tr- through the desert, looking for that thing that will quench our thirst, to cool the heat of a world on fire. place where you know seeking conditions that where we can have a sense of ease a sense of well-being a sense of belonging where we can shed our burdens and the conventional kind of strategy for this is to uh, try to organize the conditions of our life just so all the things that are that we like, that are pleasant, beautiful. We line them up, you know, right here in front and things that aren't so much so we either uh, soldier on, you know, kind of like that grim-faced quasi-determination to not let these things affect us or we pretend, you know, we live in a culture that uh, if you're in America, uh, North America, where, you know, people don't even want to talk about death, the inevitable end to our story is sort of like a taboo, uncomfortable subject. And of course, in a world that is constantly changing and with a mind that is constantly changing, it's it's... You never can quite get it right. 
you know, never can't line up those conditions just so because the conditions will always be changing. Um, even if we can get it just so for some period of time, you know, usually doesn't last. Um, and then our own mind changes. That's like you're, you know, if you're a single person and you you meet someone and you just know uh, soulmates, this is it. We were lovers in a distant lifetime. You just have that feeling. And then a month later, you remember why you haven't been in touch for 2,000 years. Like, just things don't last. <laughs> or the mind, the mind changes. So the pri- the primary practice that I've been doing in my daily life for some months now um, is what I call the practice of not complaining. Some of you have heard me talk about this. Uh, and it's just what it sounds like. So, you know, starting with out loud, just noticing that, you know, a lot of the things that I'm saying are complaints of some kind. Um, the aspiration, of course, is to have no outer complaints and no inner complaints. Um, I've enlisted people in my life, uh, my wife, some people that I teach with, that I'm in the field with a lot, to gently point out uh, when the habit of complaining has gone unrecognized. And they just the prompt is just to say, you know, is that a is that a complaint? Uh, and maybe not surprisingly, my reaction to being reminded that I'm complaining, which I've asked for, <laughs> is uh, a kind of complaint. <laughs> you know, I kind of like well, I, you know, complaining that I'm not allowed to complain. There's such a sense of like the complaint needs to be voiced in some way. It's like that energy of complaining is like that for me. And um, maybe there's an intuition or a sense or belief that uh, I could just get it off my chest. If I just complain, it'll be like a vent. It'll release the pressure. It'll be um, beneficial in some way. And uh, maybe it's like this for some people, you know, but for me, what I really notice when I check in is that um, it builds. It's never just like a pressure release. It's like, and another thing, and another thing, you know, I'm just building a bigger and bigger case against whatever it is I'm in resistance to. Uh, and not ultimately solving a problem, you know, just um, creating internal agitation in the mind. And a lot of the a lot of the complaints are, you know, like my, I might say, legitimate. You know, complaining about the state of things in the world, divisive public political dialogue. Uh, a lot of things that I value, like science and expertise and uh, experience being devalued by a large segments of the population. Uh, 
the existential issues we're facing with climate. I'm, uh, I normally am in Southern California. Today I'm in Phoenix and, um, you know, today it was like 112, 113 degrees. This is, uh, happens here, but it's been happening to a greater degree. You know, this is, this is what we're doing to the planet. All these are sort of like legitimate things that one could complain about. But really, my aspiration is like, could I just drop the complaint and just do the thing? <laughs> that would be helpful. <laughs> Sometimes the quarrels I have or the complaints I have or the complaints are manifesting as some kind of resistance to something that is, um, you know, a fundamental law of the universe. Like I might have a complaint, this body is aging, can't do what it used to do, aches and pains. And if one of the fruits of meditation that we desire, I know this is why I came to meditation, many people come to meditation, is to have some sense of ease and well-being and um, equanimity, to be like more in balance. Um, that the habit or practice of complaining is a barrier to this uh, sense of equanimity because it it's just by its nature agitating. And so when I talk about complaint, I'm talking about um, some expression of dissatisfaction that has some seed of uh, what the Buddha might have called ill will, aversion, resistance. Sometimes it, it sometimes it could just be a request, you know, the server brings you the wrong thing, you tell them that they made a mistake, doesn't have to be a complaint, you know, often the habit will be to make it a complaint, but it could just be a request. Um, and I've noticed too that, you know, in interpersonal communications and, uh, you know, primary relationships, um, there's often complaining that is really just disguising a request. You see this dynamic in, in people, you know, who share a household, like, you know, your roommate or your significant other says, you know, you never blah, 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 you know, and it's a, it's a complaint. It's got like force and an agitation in it, but really it's just like, they're wishing you would do the thing. Uh, and that's sort of the easy case. Like when I notice that my complaints are a over energetic request, then I can just tack and um, make it a request of some kind. Sometimes I notice my complaints are just a response to suffering. If there's a lot of physical or emotional pain, I might be prone to complain about it. Uh, and here's where the, it gets a little tricky because it certainly can be helpful to talk to friends, to talk to a therapist um, in some way that helps metabolize that. You know, if you have good friends and good therapists, they won't let you do the thing where you go and another thing and another thing and ramp up the energy. Some of you might remember Julia Butterfly Hell. 
she was an activist and uh she lived in a she like tied herself up at the top of a redwood tree for nearly two years as a protest to keep this tree from being cut down. It's very inspiring. I think they did a documentary about her. She's really interesting people. But she used to say, um, if you're not angry, then you're asleep. And this is some of that sense of like, there's a lot to complain about. Um, when I feel like there's nothing I can do, or there's just a sense of heartbreak at how things are, then complaining might feel like I'm doing something. (laughs) And the habit of complaining can become very strong. You know, my, my training, uh, I've been a real estate lawyer for 30 years. So, Uh, I have specialized training in imagining worst possible outcomes, like a degree in catastrophizing. Uh, And all of us have this to some extent, you know, it's built into our neurology that we, we process information that's scary or stressful or dangerous much more quickly than we process information related to rewards or dopamine responses. Um, when we were roaming the jungles in Africa, this is like what kept us alive, that we could recognize dangers, remember where it is, be very connected to uh, the hazards of um, of life. And our neurology is not so different from those ancestors that, you know, that which is stressful or dangerous attracts our attention. The the mavens of the media, politicians, corporate America, they all know this. And so we are continually bombarded with messages that are um, diabolically and ingeniously crafted to hijack our attention. Easiest way to do this is to stroke fear or stroke outrage. So we have to take some, you know, it behooves us to take some responsibility to have some stewardship of the mind of like, what what are we exposing ourselves to? What are we taking in? The Buddha said, um, whatever a person frequently thinks or ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. Whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon that becomes the inclination of the mind. So the mind that practices complaining becomes really good at complaining, really good at seeing the faults with things in a way that actually um, can kind of sap the joy out of life. And actually, because of our neurology, it takes intentional effort to take in, to savor, to let... uh, pleasant, beautiful, positive experiences nourish us. More words from the Buddha. This is from the Dhammapada, translated by Gil Fransdahl. Uh, All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, 
speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, made by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. How we speak, how we act, even how we think affects our sense of well-being. The complaining mind leads to misery and ill will, and the non-complaining mind, mind that is accepting, um, leads to happiness and well-being. So the, the the Buddha had a lot to say about ill will, uh, you know, and it's just sometimes the translation we get is hatred, you know, but I think. You really can think of it as a continuum from like a slight irritation to what we might call hatred or rage, outrage. Um, it, ill will is seen as one of the so-called three poisons of the mind, along with greed and confusion or delusion. And according to these te- uh, the teachings, these energies play the primary role in our suffering. And as an aside, there's a kind of, you know, I used to think of it as a sort of like a, with this version of pop psychology. Uh, but I've actually, you know, there's there's this text from 1500 years ago called the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification that has like, dozens of pages, long sections that talk about um, a person's temperament or personality type. And uh, there are many temperaments. The three sort of primary temperaments are uh, the greedy type. So the greedy type walks into a room, they see the painting on the wall and they think, oh, this is so beautiful. They really appreciate that painting. They think that painting would look great over my mantle. Uh, Then there's the aversive type. I put myself in that category. The aversive type walks in and sees that the painting is slightly crooked and they notice everything else that's wrong with the room. And, you know, the temperament type has their strengths and their weaknesses. So the, the, you know, the greedy type really appreciates the fine things. They can be generous. They can be, um, really enjoy life in a way that uh, is helpful, you know. Uh, But then they also can be greedy, you know, (laughs) where they need a lot of things to be satisfied. Uh, and then the aversive type, you know, like we're the ones that see what needs to be fixed and we have the skills to fix it. This is really important in the world, but we're also the ones that are prone to not seeing what's good in the world and just seeing problems. And that can lead to being a little depressed or a little angry. And then the deluded type of the person, they never made it to the room. They're just like wandering on the halls, not really sure where they're supposed to be. And uh, you can, you probably have a sense. I mean, some of us are mixed. Might be like 
have a second, you know, greedy aversive type or an aversive greedy type, but you probably have a sense. There are actually like quizzes you can take online uh, of what your temperament is and then to develop a practice that supports your temperament, which is what I'm sort of doing with this idea of practice not complaining. You know, it's just uh, something that is helpful for my temperament, my tendency to complain. Um, when I notice that the stream of greed is stronger, then I might practice, you know, some renunciation, like letting things be less comfortable or a little more challenging, relaxing into that. Uh, going on retreat is often a version of this for greedy types, you know, because there's a simplicity and a renunciation and uh, it can be helpful. Uh and then those folks that you might say are deluded or confused, it can be really helpful to have a practice where you really pay attention to what's happening, maybe use mental noting to stay grounded in um, the data that mindfulness is constantly gathering if we tune into it. So the the the, the teaching to the Buddha set a very high bar when it comes to ill will. Um, actually, here's a passage where the the Buddha is encouraging people not to complain. <laughs> also from the Dhammapada, he abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. So straight from the bullet, stop care. The carrying on is the key aspect. That's the complaining. Rather than keeping it alive, you know, that's the other thing about complaining is that we keep the thing alive. Um, so much of the practice is about letting go, but we, we there's a clinging or grasping in the activity of complaining. There's the famous parable of the two-handed saw. It's very graphic, unusually graphic and violent for the Buddha's teachings, but uh, I think really important, in part because it is so extreme. So the Buddha says, speaking to his followers, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely limb by limb with a two-handed saw, he among you who would let his heart get angered, even at that would not be doing my bidding. So even if bandits savagely carve you up, don't complain. <laughs> The Buddha goes on, even then you should train yourselves. Our mind will be unaffected. We will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic with a mind of goodwill with no inner hate. So this high standard comes with the understanding that when we have a mind of ill will, or we're saying words that are tinged with ill will, this is afflictive to us. It's like drinking a poison. The bandits are long gone. <laughs> It said that uh, hold, it's like holding a grudge is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Or the Buddha described it as picking up a hot coal to throw at someone and in the process 
we get burnt ourselves. The Buddha goes on to say, we will keep pervading these people with an awareness imbued with goodwill. And beginning with them, we will keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill, abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. This is how you should train yourselves. So some of you might recognize that this is the Buddha's instructions for the cultivation of metta, the method that many of us learned. Um, those of you that have learned the metta practice involves uh, seeding of the mind with phrases, but the original teaching is more this sense of like an energetic pervading or radiating um, of metta, goodwill, friendliness, benevolence, kindness, uh, radiating in all directions. So sometimes in uh, spiritual communities, we get the sense that anger is bad, shouldn't be angry, experience anger as some sort of spiritual shortcoming or character flaw. Uh, I've been in many communities and in leadership in communities and, you know, it, it becomes a problem that, you know, someone who's angry, you know, no one will listen to them or they'll be silenced just saying, you know, you need to practice more. You shouldn't be angry. Uh, it's not helpful. It's not the anger that's actually a problem. Right? It's quite, anger is quite a natural, uh, the animal body of the, of, uh, of us is going to react with energy to things that are unpleasant to think, you know, things that are unjust, things that uh, need attention. Just not the anger itself. That's the problem. It's, it's rather the problem happens when we lack a kind of restraint and where we act out in angry ways that are harmful to ourselves or others. But in this practice, we can learn how to be with the energy of anger, ill will, frustration, irritation. Sometimes for me, it just manifests as a kind of grumpiness. <laughs> um, to metabolize those energies and also cultivate conditions that promote the arising of compassion and generosity and patience. One really thing that's helpful, really with any energies we're trying to manifest, but especially with anger, ill will, is to notice the feeling tone or Vedana that comes with the experience. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither. Every experience that we have, every time the the mind makes contact with an object or one of the senses make contact with an object, there's this essentially simultaneous experience of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Uh, that's highly variable, you know. It's highly individual, highly variable. Um, first piece of cake, if you like cake, pleasant. You know, fifth piece of cake, maybe not so much. Uh, 
you might like electronic dance music. I might find that extremely unpleasant. Uh, if you're trying to sleep, even as a lover of EDM, probably not so pleasant. The, the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither is constantly changing. But one thing that's interesting about Hill Will is that I experience it as both pleasant and unpleasant. The Buddha described it as an arrow with a honey tip and a poison root. Uh, and I love this because this is how I experience it. Like the, the onset of some energy of anger or ill will is, uh, you know, you might get an adrenaline boost. You might feel like um, it's very easy to confuse that with agency, like feel like we're an agency. Um some people get their way by being angry. Um, people might fear you. Maybe that's something you enjoy. But anger is a arrow with a honey tip. So the onset or the initial experience might feel good, but Inevitably, we get to the poison root, however that manifests for us, you know. When I worked in law firms, you know, I, I was never in a highly confrontational area of the law, just not just bad for my disposition to be. Uh, and I knew that even as a young person. So, but I would be around these people who were constantly in battle, you know, big stakes things constantly. And they, uh, I would tell them, you know, like, just imagine you're in a play, see it as a game, but, you know, they would do, care about these things and get really involved in them. And uh, the most common thing I saw was like, people would just have this like, kind of like adrenal exhaustion where like just being in that state of combat all the time uh, just takes a toll on the body. The Buddha, the Buddha likened ill will to a sickness. Now people, and now they, you know, now they say ulcers are caused by a bacteria, but they are exacerbated by a kind of stress of anger and ill will. So very concrete effects on our body. Anger is tricky because it sometimes, you know, comes out of nowhere. Um, sometimes we can't even tell. Of course, if we're enraged, we're going to be aware of that. But sometimes we can't even tell. Like we're like just a little annoyed or irritated. Um, I was in a conversation with someone recently, and uh, she was annoyed at something, and it was kind of coming through in our conversation. Very unpleasant way, and I said, uh, "I can see you're really annoyed." And she said, "I'm not annoyed," you know, like her instant reaction. And then she laughed because she could see that you know she was annoyed. The anger is often like layered, and so it can feel like an amorphous glob of feelings. It's often a cover for 
more tender emotions, like sadness or grief or loneliness. When I look beneath most of the places where I have a complaint, where there's some ill will, there's a kind of heartbreak in it. Like there's like a deep wish that things be different, uh, things be better than they are. But sometimes the heart, you know, the system, it's just easier to bear the strength of anger than the tenderness and vulnerability of grief or heartbreak. So the Buddha in the, uh, goes on to say about the cultivation of metta, he says, when one develops um, loving kindness in this way, uh, no limiting action remains. And I love that phrase, no limiting action remains. It's, it's really the sense that the things that are not metta, the things that are tinged with ill will or uh, aggression or even sometimes boredom, you know, like anything that is not this sort of heart radiating freely in all directions, uh, it limits us. You know, it limits our capacity to rest peacefully, have a calm abiding in the here and now. It, uh, limits our ability to see the liberative truths of the teachings that in a way that's liberative, you know, like and a kind of proposition that's embedded in all of the Buddhist paths, you know, sometimes when I say this or other people say this, there's like a strong reaction, but I believe this to be true, that, that the, the Buddha's path proposes a kind of radical accountability. The proposition that any anger that arises in this mind-heart is uh, my responsibility. Uh, any reactivity, for that matter, uh, the seeds for that anger in this heart, this body, this mind, and... Uh, for all the things I can't control, I can at least influence that through a path of practice. It's not to say that the external isn't important. Of course, we're affected by our environment. It's just moving away from uh, blame, which is another form of complaint, um, to kind of taking, uh, to be empowered. It's a kind of empowerment, you know, uh, putting us in the driver's seat inviting a kind of agency through mindfulness, through practice, rather than leaving us at the whims of the conditions of this moment. So one of the ways to work with um, the energy of anger, or any kind of energy, it's like a way of describing practice. Many of you might know RAIN, the acronym that M Michelle McDonald came up with that was popularized by Tara Brock. I'm going to give you a different acronym, which is RAFT. I got this from Gil Fronsel. RAFT stands for recognize, allow, feel, 
and tease apart. And I like raft because there's, you know, there's a lot of symbolism about the raft that carries us to the other shore, you know, the, the path of practice. Um, to recognize this is the core of the mindfulness practice. We can see what's happening. Recognize the constellations of thoughts and emotions and sensations in the body and, and know that experience in the, in the moment. Hopefully more and more in the moment. Sometimes we can do this retrospectively, but um, people I work with, I really I strongly encourage people to have a daily practice because it takes a kind of base line of mindfulness to even notice what's happening, to even be, to have any kind of agency. We're going through a life that's often busy and complex. So recognize our A is allow. A is not complaining. It's a it's a momentary surrender to how things are in this moment. It's not the surrender that says, I can't do anything about this in the next moment. Um, it's just that in this moment, if I if there's nothing I can really do immediately to affect it anything that's not allowing is um, a form of complaint which is creating more agitation system so recognize allow the f is feel and just as someone i love feel because it's just so simple like just opening yourself to what's the experience of this is what it's like to be a person who's irritated or frustrated or in despair or anxious, whatever it might be. You're building a kind of like, uh, it strengthens our ability to recognize when we really just feel what that is. And, and when we give permission to the system to feel, um, energy can often move. And that's where the experience gets metabolized and it gets uh, digested. And uh, it's a huge fruit of this practice. So recognize, allow, feel. And then T is tease apart. You know, another thing that we can do in our meditation practice is deconstruct our experience. So I was saying earlier that sometimes anger, a lot of anger is like an amorphous glob of experiences. Just, I was working with somebody, mentoring them in meditation practice, and I said, how are you feeling? And uh, the person just said, ah, like it was just a sound. They couldn't really articulate what it was <laughs> because there's so many things happening and, and, I help them deconstruct the experience. So in this deconstruction process, you can begin with noticing that there are thoughts present. There's a story, a narrative, a view paradigm that might be built into that. When I notice the complaining mind, oftentimes the view is it shouldn't be like this. Or how can it be like this? It's like a lament in the form of a question. I used to, when I was a younger person, I, I had a, I just thought the world should be a fair place that 
decisions should be made on you know on a merit meritocratic basis and smart people should do well and you know all these things that you know are just the naivete of youth and then you you grow up and you see oh it's not like that at all like so much of life is just dumb luck or knowing the right people uh and i used to have this constant lament about this um but it's just a story it's just a view it's a belief uh and when i began to you know, loosen my grip on that uh, like righteous indignation that shouldn't be like this. Um, actually experienced less distress and more peacefulness. We can notice the narrative that's happening, the thoughts, the view, the paradigm. Like, here's where, you know, like the tendencies and my tendency, and it's, somewhat intellectual cerebral person is to like engage in a debate with those views well you know but yeah it really is you know really should you know really should be like that and and this is never helpful in my experience (laughs) at least not in the practice the the domain of meditation practice so we notice the thoughts, the views, the paradigms that are happening, and then we drop down into what's happening in the emotional sphere. I've been talking a lot about anger, but there can also be fear or grief or anxiety, all kinds of things that can be driving our experience. So we we touch into these constellations of experience that we recognize and named Um it's all, you know, listed as a step, recognize, allow, feel, tease apart. But it's you know, the way it's just like it's all happening at the same time. And feeling is part of teasing apart also. And then we come to the level of sensation. So what's happening in the body? Where's their tension? Where's their tightness? Where's their heat? Where's their coolness? What's the energetic pattern of how things are moving? The vibratory is it like sharp is it um some people might have a color or a sound associated with it this is the the skill set we build in vipassana practice to fully investigate and understand our experience and almost without fail i've yet to uh experience this any other way what's happening at the level of the body is much more manageable than what might be happening in the emotional sphere or what might be happening in the mental sphere. So it's a deconstruction and also a simplification. And we can just like letting the attention rest on the sensations of the body and letting other things be in the background. This is another, this is another thing that I, have come to realize. Uh, I was recently at a retreat where the teacher said this. Um, my colleague we're teaching together said that the, the whole of this meditation practice is learning where to rest the heart, developing the wisdom of where we rest the attention, where we rest the mind, where we rest the heart. And so when there's a lot of activity in the body, a lot to digest sometimes resting the heart on the level of sensation is the most helpful thing so recognize allow feel 
tease apart or deconstruct. This is from Shanti Deva. Where would I possibly find enough leather with which to cover the surface of the earth? But wearing leather just on the soles of my shoes is equivalent to covering the earth with it. I cannot restrain the external course of all things. But should I restrain this mind of mine, what need would there be to restrain anything else? Unruly beings are as unlimited as space. They cannot possibly all be overcome. But if I overcome thoughts of anger alone, this will be equivalent to vanquishing all foes. I'm thinking about this a lot. I have a lot to say about it. There's never enough time. Uh, so this thing that we're we're searching for, it's possible that like the woman in Iceland is not lost, but actually rather it's here. It's here in every moment waiting for us to notice. So Gil Rinpoche says, uh, imagine a sky empty, spacious, and pure from the beginning. The essence of mind is like this. Imagine a sun, luminous, clear, unobstructed, and spontaneously present. The nature of mind is like this. Imagine a sun shining out impartially on us and on all things, penetrating all directions. The energy of mind, which is the manifestation of compassion, is like this. Nothing can obstruct it, and it pervades everywhere. So this awareness that knows experience, this uh, field of knowing in which all experience arises and passes away, um, is not lacking in anything, doesn't have too much of anything. It doesn't take on the characteristic of the experience that's appearing through it. And it doesn't reject anything. You know, if the sense if the sense of hearing works and a sound arises, that sound appears in consciousness. And there might be another part, the discursive mind that says, Oh, I don't like that sound, or that sound, you know, what is that sound? That scary sound. But the field in which this experience arises doesn't have it's it's completely non-judgmental, it's non-discriminating unobstructed it's not preferencing it's not resisting and this is why the sages say that it's the manifestation of compassion is that quality of non-resistance non-rejection is a is a kind of like that's what compassion's like
And if we're alive, this mind is always operating. This, you know, sometimes we sit, a colleague of mine, Temple Smith, says, capital M mind. <laughs> so we're talking about the capital M mind. It's this field in which thing things arise. And then there's the little M mind, which is, you know, nitpicking and it's the complaining mind, the preferencing mind, the comparing mind. Maybe I'll end with uh, an excerpt from Tore Zenji's Bodhisattva Vow. How can we be ungrateful to anyone or anything? Even though someone may be a fool, we can be compassionate. If someone turns against us, speaking ill of us and treating us bitterly, it is best to bow down. That is actually the Buddha appearing to us, finding ways to free us from our own attachments, the ones that have made us suffer again and again and again. Now on each flash of thought, a lotus flower blooms, and on each flower, a Buddha May we share this mind with all beings so that we and the world together may grow in wisdom. I love this notion that uh, when suffering arises, when we experience suffering, especially when it has someone or something's name on it, uh, there's an encourage- the encouragement to bow down, like to recognize that this is carries within it a seed of some kind of inner transformation, presenting us an opportunity, actually, as corny as it may sound, to see how we're relating to the, that experience. Now, on each flash of thought, a lotus flower blooms, and on each flower, a Buddha. It's like that all thoughts have this seed of liberation, even the aversive thoughts or the unwholesome thoughts that when we bring our attention to us, they become part of the path and carry this seed of liberation within them. Lotus, of course, is the symbol for enlightenment. Now on each flash of thought, lotus flower blooms and on each flower, Buddha. Thank you, everyone, for your kind attention. So we have a little bit of time. I would love to hear um, anybody share their relationship with complaining. (laughs) Anything else that you want to comment on or ask about? Stephen. Yes, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes. Okay. Thank you for taking my call. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm finding that uh, it really does have to do with complaining. And I'm complaining that, um, and it could be because I am in, a, in an older generation, but I find that, like, I will send a text to different people about making arrangements with them. And they show every indication that they like me a lot, but they they don't respond 
a lot of times. It's just like you send a text and you get nothing back. And today it was like four different things where I hear nothing. And it could be to the point where, oh, yeah, we're going to get together. When do you want to meet? Then I say something and I don't hear anything for weeks. And this is not atypical. And it has to do with a group of people, you know, different people I have. And it's kind of like, well, do I really analyze it and then get into a whole thing with them about why they don't respond to their text? Or do I just let it go? I mean, I've come to the conclusion that letting it go is definitely the best way to go. But it's it's weird. It's kind of like it's like you're, you you got these threads going out to different people. And then there's nothing that's con- that's conducting it back, like with electricity. This it just leaves you. Mm. And, and I've heard this from other people too, that um, they just instead of saying no, they get you get nothing, and it it's pretty irritating. Yes, <laughs> I feel you. Uh, I was talking to a friend uh, the other day had a similar complaint and we were kind of nostalgic for the the pre-smartphone days because back in the day you made a plan and you stuck to it there was no changing the plan on the fly because people would be somewhere you know and there's no way to communicate with them and our conclusion was that um because it's possible to be so spontaneous that um You know, some people are just holding out for a better offer. <laughs> and uh, and it's painful, you know, when you're seeking connection. We're profoundly social beings. We thrive with connection. You know, you don't pick up a baby, it dies. Um, and that's, you know, it's a complexity of our society that people are busy, people are distracted, people, you know. Um, But I, I, I like your instinct that uh, the ongoing complaint is not helpful. And the verbalized complaint is probably going to be a disaster. <laughs> well, that's, that's the conclusion I've come to, that if I actually, you know, bring it up and say, you know, like, you're just leaving me in confusion by not ask, asking it. Um, I've come to the conclusion that that's, going to create a lot of havoc and then yeah. on all this processing and 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 you come back to the same conclusion that, that the people's behavior don't change yeah this is a little bit what i was talking about before you know of like um does trans- that make sense does that to- make sense what i'm to- saying totally makes sense and 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 it, it i was thinking and i said before earlier that sometimes i will try to trans form a complaint into a request Mm -hmm. and sometimes you can even make that like a kind of like emotive request of like you know i really miss you guys i wish we could get together you know like that might have a different reaction of than uh you know how come you never respond you know like that's sort of like human nature people will uh, but ultimately, yeah. but ultimately, you know, like, I think, you know, there's, there's something, there's a, there's a wound, you know, that, 
can be digested and metabolized in um, meditation practice. Yeah, and I, I like what you said about they're looking for uh, they're they're looking for a better offer. Yeah, you know, like maybe something else will come back better. So I won't respond to him because maybe maybe there's you know something else out there that I like more. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. Um, someone in the chats. Uh, Emmanuel is asking about the three personality types. Um, the positive of greed is like the appreciation of beauty, joie de vivre, ability to like really savor things that are enjoyable, beautiful, um, which like nourishes us, you know, like the ability to stop and the, you know, smell the proverbial roses is like something that, um, uh, a greedy type uh, excel at. And they're often very generous, you know, like they, they cherish things that are high quality and, and beautiful and will often uh, paradoxically will often be generous and share them. Want, you know, they want, they get joy out of you getting joy out of them sometimes. But I think there were some other hands raised. Um, but I don't see them at the moment. Seth? Hi. Oh, I'm not looking at all this. I just just now realized that what my mother did during my entire childhood was a cry for help, and I didn't recognize it. I heard this conversation before and someone reacted and said, no, a woman in a situation where she's being abused, domestic abuse, has to complain. So I think we need to be very careful. It's very easy. And I see it in my life. Everybody turns a a deaf ear. Oh, it's a complaint. And I'm asking for help. Yeah, thank you for raising that. That's a really important uh, distinction between like I'm talking, I'm talking about complaining as a kind of like habit of the mind. But when we need help, um, you know, the, the trouble with with abuse situations is that we often like agency, and actually, that's one of the things where. Anger can actually be helpful in finding our agency um, to be able to speak out, to be able to say what we need, to be able to seek help. Um, So that's a really, really important distinction. I'm very glad that you voiced that. Uh, Kimberly. Aloha, and thank you so much for such a lovely meditation and talk. I am, in hearing what you are saying, I'm reminded of Sila and right speech and right, it's it's reinforcing what I've learned. I'm so absolutely grateful for my studies of, in Buddhism to 
like I suffer with chronic pain, but I kind of forget it sometimes because I don't talk about it anymore mm. in, but finding that balance, right. Of reaching out when I need help, like the previous person was saying, absolutely. So finding balance in everything is so, so important. And that's my takeaway hearing what you talked about today. It, it was so helpful and I really appreciate it because it's, that reinforcement of, I don't feel good. Oh, I hurt. It literally does reinforce it. And that's why I'm so grateful for gratitude practice because it's the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. The opposite of complaining to try to find anything that isn't complaining to be in my mm -hmm. life, which is so helpful because it takes the brain away from the, whether it's physical or emotional pain, right? Which is, I think, sometimes where complaining can originate. So thoughts and thank you <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i love tying it to sila or ethics integrity um the buddha's classical expression of why speech is speech that is um timely kind not divisive not idle and beneficial and this is where i it's easy to see you know like certain type of like complaining or seeking help is beneficial, but the kind of habitual ongoing, um, you know, complaints about everything are, are not beneficial. And so we can learn to try to abandon them. And then also, you know, what you're describing is, um, Again, what I think is the core of the practice, like developing the wisdom and the skill to be able to rest the heart um, wherever is most beneficial in that moment. And certainly times where, you know, those of us that have chronic pain will, you know, it is helpful to understand what's happening in the body at the level of sensation. Um, and then other times, but, you know, with pain, it tends to be exhausting mentally and emotionally and even on the level of the nervous system so developing the skill to know when that's helpful and that's fruitful and to know when it's helpful to focus on gratitude or Thich Nhat Hanh used to describe the the joy of the non-toothache is really skillful Fiona Um, hi, can you hear me okay? Yes. Hi, thank you for your beautiful talk and meditation. Um, I I had one question before I say what I want to do about complaining. I did not catch the T part of the raft. So I was going to ask you about that. Sure. Um, sure. But I was just thinking that for me, I complain a lot, but I I know that most of my complaints are... I call them problem problems of privilege complaints. Mm. Um, there's a lot of homelessness in uh, where I live. And, you know, like today I could be driving down, I'm driving down the road and I'm tired and I'm hungry. And I just think, well, you know, I'm blessed. I have a car. I just brought groceries and I have a home to go, a home to go home to with shelter. And so 
like I know when I'm grumpy and irritable and I, I try to look at what's behind that, you know, and, and, and am I hungry? Am I tired? Usually it's because I'm tired or I've overloaded myself, um, putting too much into my day. Um, and sometimes I just need a really good gripe session, but I, I think for the most part, I just, um, you know, today my life is, is blessed. You know, I, 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 I really have a blessed life and I, I, you know, I have some health problems, but there are people with worse health problems. And, but even saying that is just not to minimize my problems because, um, I take some medication that really affects me. Um, you know, but I, you know, on my gratitude list, I am thankful for the medication, mm-hmm. you know, thank you for the medication that's keeping me alive. So, so I, I guess that's what I was thinking about. I, and I, I guess for me, it's, it's noticing, just noticing that I'm complaining and I'm whining and, and it's okay, but you know, what do I need to do to help myself? And if I can't talk to a friend or something, um, so, so yeah, that's, those are my thoughts on complaining. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. There's something that, you know, I teach mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a, you know, secular form of mindfulness. And uh, we give people an acronym, uh, HALT. Uh, And it's to point to uh, times or situations where you're more prone to reactivity. Mm-hmm. And HALT stands for hungry, angry, tired, or lonely. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this, you know, you've, you've kind of noticed that in your own experience that uh, something has been really helpful for me in my relationships is is to like have an agreement to, you know, not have difficult discussions when one of those things has happened or, you know, to like have a way of communicating that, that, you know, it's a halt time and, and it's good advice, like halt, like hold that, that for another time when you're more resourced. And then T and then T in, in uh, raft is teasing apart. Ah, that's it. Thank you. Yeah. The most common way that's expressed is looking at thoughts, emotions, and sensations, but you know, could be others. It's one model. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? Leslie. Hi, Gulen. Nice to be with you. Yeah, nice to see you. Um, so I've had a lot of loss in my life recently. My my mother died after having cancer, and um, you know, I've been watching myself among you know many feelings that I'm having, but you know, being complaining more than usual. And kind of, you know, bordering on ranting and very irritable. And it's been nice to sit with this tonight because it's just a reminder that, you know, I think it's just about feeling the sorrow of what's been lost, what is never going to be, what has been that I would like to be different, you know, and to just come back to the practice because 
sitting with those feelings and digesting them with the practice is really so much easier than just being irritable and grumpy and complaining and ranting. And, you know, I, I catch myself and I'm like, I'm not very pleasant to be around. And I don't really want to be around myself in that state, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I'm, I'm trying to really laugh and have compassion too, because it's really a tender time, but you know, yeah, I don't, you know, if I don't want to be around myself, probably other people don't really want to be around it. And, you know, I really need the people in my life. I don't want to push them away. I want them to want to come and be close to me. So it's just been a good time to sort of look at what motivates the, the complaining, you know, in a really particularly difficult time. Yeah. Um, so, and, and also really trying to, um, have compassion for myself because I don't feel like I don't I don't want to you know what is the second arrow you know I don't want to be kicking myself because I'm not behaving in a way that I want to be behaving um but anyway so it's been lovely to sort of sit here and remember like oh you know there's there are other ways to take care of myself I don't need to be complaining (laughs) it's not really serving me so thank you yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. I, you know, I experience a lot of my complaining um, as connected to grief. Um, a lot of my complaining is about uh, humanity's bad behavior that has led to catastrophic results. Um, when I've been in grief at, at the loss of a person, I noticed that that gets kicked up even more um and and yeah i really i i I like you and i want to use that as a cudgel to beat myself up with you know to but have it be like a gentle aspiration to to let go of what's not useful um but it's a it's a condition where you know complaining is is just more ripe for that yeah so like i like that part of being kind to yourself is just being sort of patient with the part of you that's grumpy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little easier to be grumpy than to be grieving. And so it kind of gives the system a break a little bit, uh, especially if you're aware of it, you know, the, the, the little moments of indulgence aren't likely to be as detrimental than if this is all happening outside of awareness. Uh, Nick. Hello. Thank you so much for tonight and everyone else that has uh, shared their experience with this topic. Um, I'm definitely in a different placement of complaining. I I feel like all the complaining happens in my own head. Um, I've lived in San Francisco in the Bay Area all my life and um i feel like complaining isn't something that's so much accepted here and even more so the topics have become a lot more controversial to complain about so i've i found the noise has been getting very loud in my own head mm. and it's been driving me crazy in in some aspects 
um, for sure. And, and then I've noticed it's becoming more common on the on the day to day. I live in a section of the city that's not really affected too much by what's been going on, but it's definitely um, starting to make its way here. But it's also um, becoming so loud and regular around so many people that I know that I'm definitely complaining every day in my mind. Um, and I don't find myself to be somebody who complains about things. I definitely went through um, my early 20s with a lot of complaining, and it definitely was a wake-up call because I learned really quickly that complaining really gets you nowhere. Um, I learned a lot of hard lessons complaining at work, complaining with friends. It, it, it drove me um, far away from a lot of people, and I learned that complaining doesn't work. Um, but I'm in a stage now where complaining internally is taking place because I don't have anywhere else to voice my complaints. And there definitely are a lot of issues going on on the day-to-day -day that I don't feel safe, uh, physically safe or mentally safe as well. But those complaints are still there without um, a way of being voiced or process and I can do as many meditations or exercises that make me feel better for the moment but they they rise up again because they're not being dealt with in some way um I know that might be convoluted but I hope that made sense mm -hmm. oh, <laughs> thank you totally made sense you know I I I had this experience that I um in February of 2017, I went on a two-month retreat. So right after the inauguration of the previous president, I went into silence for two months. And the predominant experience was a kind of dread. So I'm completely disconnected. I don't have a device. I don't know. I don't know what's happening in the real world, but I just felt like pit of the stomach kind of dread you know what is going on out there uh and i tried all kinds of you know like i've been practicing a long time so it's like should know better but like all this sort of like meditation jujitsu that would take down the dread and uh, have it dissolve into a field of warmth and love um which didn't happen uh, but I spoke to my teacher about it. You know, these retreats, you get to have practice discussion meetings with uh, a teacher. And I said, you know, I told him what I was going through. And he said, you know, I'm really sorry that you're suffering. Um, but I'm not sorry that you're experiencing dread. <laughs> a dramatic pause. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, and he said, because that experience of dread... Uh, reminds you that there's still things you care about. And so that dread is like a disguised form of love. And um, I still have dread. Like, you know, that, it's not gone away and probably was there before it was even an awareness. But every time I get that feeling, that pit of the stomach, that dread, oh no, um, I'm reminded that it, that I'm not overly cynical, I'm not numb, I haven't just like zoned out, I'm not pretending that everything's okay when things aren't okay. 
Um, and that's been profoundly helpful for me to recognize that, you know, that that dread is uh, it's a form of love and things I care about that, that are, are, are constantly in jeopardy. <laughs> Yeah, and hear some of that and what you're talking about. I mean, the situation. And uh, I mean, I live in LA, and there's a lot of homelessness there too, and um, places where there's a little bit of anarchy. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. Thank you, Nick. Um, sorry, Jacob. I think we're out of time. Um, Thank you, everybody, uh, for your kind attention, for the lovely discussion. Um, I'm around. I'm I'm trying to make a living as a meditation teacher. And so if you're interested in uh, what I'm offering from time to time, you can sign up for my email list. Liana will provide that in some form. Uh, and I, I love being here you know it's just i can think of no better way to spend my monday evening um everybody be safe be well keep practicing hope to see you again on the dharma trails thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.